Greetings in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus. I appreciate it, uh, the things that we have uh, heard here today. You know, we can uh, be challenged in uh, many different aspects of life. And that's what part of brotherhood life is all about. Just, uh, oh, does a proverb writer say, iron sharpening iron, allowing the Word of God and uh, other believers' experiences in life to to challenge and to uh, add breadth and depth to our faith and perspective. So I, I appreciate that. Appreciate that very much. I had to envy old John a little. I'd like to go with him. As a as a as a sweet story. Isn't God good, you know, just the way he works those kind of things and the richest man in the valley dies and or the richest man in the valley is gonna die and then this dear saint dies. Praise God. <clears throat> he went home to glory. You can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter chapter 2. Maybe before I get started, I uh, get set up a little better here. <clears throat> Someone was gracious enough to uh, see that I had a dilemma and... Uh, that they might be able to help me out. I think they will. I was desperately wishing for a um, a good uh, whiteboard. Let's see if I can figure out how this goes on here. Do I need this? No. I can actually set the board right in there, right? Yep. Thanks. It's a bit small yet, but uh, it's better than nothing. And uh, I think it'll suffice. just need to make sure I don't knock it over. You guys over here might have a little trouble, but I'm not sure how to get it that everybody can totally see it, but we'll try that. All right, Ephesians chapter 2. We finished up last week at verse uh, 
verse 10. And we'll, uh, why don't we just begin by reading verse 11 through the end of the chapter as we continue our study of Ephesians. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. <clears throat> Could we stand together and pray? Our Father, our God, we, we quiet our hearts before you again this morning. We have your word open before us and today again. We are asking you to speak into our lives. Father, may you make these scriptures come alive to us here today in our time, in our generation, in our experience. Father, we desire to grow, to continue to develop our perspectives of you, of your kingdom, of your purpose. For us here and now, and we are just asking, Father, that your spirit would again be our teacher today. Lord, again, just here's a vessel of clay, speak through it. Lord, do keep us from our own ideas and thoughts, but let your truth and your word be expressed here again today. And may we each find... Uh, may in our own hearts, may we each find a a uh, a willingness and an earnestness to to connect with you and your your uh, kingdom and your purposes and your design for your people. Lord bless each one present here today. God, we pray. We know we all are in varied. Uh, 
places in our journey. But I'm asking you, Father, to meet each one of us right where we're at and to take us on, to develop us further, to give us a deeper kingdom perspective, to give us a deeper kingdom heart, to give us a deeper kingdom passion. Father, grant that to us today. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. We have here today this scripture before us. And uh, in the very first verse, as he uh, continues his discussion with the Gentile believers, which is what this book was largely written to and is addressed to the Gentile believers. So you notice that many times as he as he goes through this uh, this book, uh, the first chapter he uh, he just gave definition to their faith, which they were already experiencing. He wrote it to believers, and obviously. Uh, what works for believers also works for the unbeliever. I think it was intended to uh, not only give depth and breadth to the believers uh, in their ex- uh, in their Christian walk, but I think it's also intended to that when an unbeliever reads it, it brings conviction and brings him to a saving faith in Christ. Nonetheless, he is writing to believers, or uh, yeah, believing Jew, uh, Gentiles. And as you notice here in verse 11, he says, Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. And so here he's, he's actually contrasting uh, the Jew and the Gentile. The, un, the, the circumcision were the Jew and the uncircumcision were the Gentile. We have two very, very different groups of people. If we were to spend just a little bit of time in the Old Testament, we would discover that. I didn't think it necessary. I think we're all familiar enough that we know that uh, with just a few uh, reminders of how very different they were. The Jew were a highly law-abiding people. Um, they... Uh, understand their Torah would have had some 600 laws by which they were to live. And they, uh, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking they even had another booklet there of some sort. They added to it. They had another 400, some would say. And, but they were a highly law-abiding people. Uh, of course, we know them through the Old Testament. God gave them the law. Um, we have Leviticus. We have, you know, we have Deuteronomy. We have just... Uh, a lot of laws, a lot of, uh, and, you know, could we say, quote, a pious people, a godly people, a God-honoring people, uh, I'm going to say just a holy people. I'm saying that a little bit general because we know the stories. It's not, they didn't all live up to what God wanted them to be. But the Jew was a very uh, God-fearing uh, law-abiding, very religious, many ceremonies, many feasts, many holy days. Uh, yeah, they were um, 
They were a very, very uh, law-abiding, godly people, we, we will say, for the sake of uh, the contrast. The Gentile, on the other hand, was a very lawless people. And we know that too. Uh, they were a very lewd people, a very wicked people. Uh, what the flesh could imagine they lived. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not even going to begin to go there this morning. It wouldn't be good for our minds. And, uh, but that was the Gentile. A very, uh, very godless people. And in, ma- in many cases, very animistic in that they believed in many gods. Uh, you know, when Paul was on Mars Hill, he uh, was moved by their... Uh, Many, many gods that they worship. Uh, I believe it was there in Mars Hill where he made some comment about that. So the Gentile was a very godless people. In this scripture, we'll, uh, we'll notice that uh, we, have, we have God bringing these two groups of people from two totally opposite ends of the spectrum. And he brings them together into one as we'll uh, as we'll see in this scripture and uh, this might be a good time to put the uh, illustration on the board let me see here yeah I think we'll do it just for the sake of uh, just for the sake of that illustration, I just wanted to uh, to put uh, the two different groups of people on two opposite ends of the scope, where we have the uh, the Jew and we have the Gentile. And so it just gives us the... Uh, The two totally opposite ends of the scope, and we'll refer to that and add to that illustration some as we go. But uh, for now, let's just consider the question, how, how does God bring, you know, these two different, totally, totally opposing almost, in fact, really, they are opposing groups of people together uh, into one. How will that happen? <clears throat> First of all, let's consider a few things. Were either of these two groups, you know, let's just think about it right there in Bible times in Jesus' day. Were either of these two groups pleasing God? The law-abiding Jew and the lawless Gentile. Were either of them pleasing God? Was God able to say of either group, He is very happy with them? He is very satisfied with them. Was God able, was God happy with what the law was producing? And what it had produced over the last who knows how many years in the Jewish uh, history, in the Jewish people? Was God happy with what the lawless were producing? And what was, you know, the state of their, of their lives? And I, I think we all know the answer to that. We only have to go back 
in our memory a little bit and realize that on several different occasions, God had already dealt a harsh blow to the lawless in history with the flood and with the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, things like that. So, at large, you know, the result of either of these groups of people, uh, you know, the bottom line really is, at large, God wasn't satisfied with either one or happy with either one. Does that mean that there were no, that God wasn't happy with anyone in either group? Let's consider a few. Let's consider the law abiding first, the Jew. We won't even bother turning to a scripture on these first two that I have, but think about Joseph and Mary. You know, God seems to have been quite happy, quite satisfied with where Joseph and Mary were at. Think about uh, John the Baptist and his parents. God seems to have been quite happy with them. God used them. God seems to have had his smile approval upon them. In Luke 2, you can turn there. We'll look at a few that uh, God sets apart as those who uh, he was well satisfied with, it seems. In Luke 2, verse 25, Scripture says this, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And we'll just stop there. We probably know the rest of the story of his life. But here's a man that God was happy with. This man knew the Lord. This man was full of the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost hadn't been sent yet. But here was one of them. God was happy with him. Go down to verse 36. Scripture says, And there was, a, there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Peniel, of the tribe of Azar. She was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. She was a widow fourscore and four years, and which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And uh, here again, well, let's read verse 38. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Here's another person that uh, among the Jewish people who I'm going to say God was happy with. Here was a person who was, who was walking with God in their day and in their time. What about the Gentiles? Were there any of those? Or were they all? You know, all in one pot. All a bunch of wicked sinners. All a bunch of animistic, uh, godless people. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, 
and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying, Cornelius, when he had looked on him, he was afraid and said, Who, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. Now send, unto, send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. We'll stop there. Any question as to whether this Gentile is a man that God's happy with? He's a man who feared God, Scripture says. He prayed. He gave alms. You know, he was, he was a God-fearing man. And God, so much so that God, uh, God revealed himself to him in a dream and, and had him uh, send for Peter in order to get the full message of the gospel. Let's also, let's turn to Matthew 15. Matthew 15:21 This is in Jesus ministry Verse 21 Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon and behold a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him saying have mercy on me O Lord Thou son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. She said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Jesus Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Here we have a Gentile woman with whom God was pleased. God was happy with her. So we just look at those illustrations just just for the sake of context. Just for the sake of uh, breadth of thought. You know, we have two nations of people here. And... uh, in general, neither nation was pleasing God. But among them, there were those individuals who found God. Who, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, obviously the Jews should have had much opportunity to find God. How the Gentile got his knowledge of God and, and uh, all of that, I'm not sure. But uh, there's a few. Just a few recorded. And I'm going to guess if there's a few recorded, there were a few more that are not recorded. I, I would... Uh, I would think so. So anyhow, we have, uh, back to our uh, scripture in Ephesians, we have these two nations of people contrasted here in this scripture. Of course, the, uh, the book is written to the Jew, uh, Gentiles, so uh, the, Gen- the Jew is actually not referred to a lot. In, the, in this case, it is just a bit here. Uh, and it's referred to here just a little bit in a contrasting way. Uh, and also, of course, it gives a reference to what God wants to do and has done. But as we read the book and as we study the book, we, we, uh, his comments and his instruction and his teaching is all geared toward a Gentile audience. <clears throat> now, I'd like us to, to just notice something here. 
um, maybe maybe even a little bit of a a side note to the the basic gist of the message. But uh, notice here in Ephesians two, verse eleven and twelve, that uh, he actually contrasts. You know, you could almost say he's almost sort of bold here. He takes the Jew and or the Gentile and actually kind of uh, kind of rubs a little salt in the wound maybe in that he mentions the, the Jew and how the Jew actually viewed the Gentile, which uh, was not a not an unknown thing at all. I mean the, the, the uh, there in verse uh, later in the chapter there in verses 15 and 16 he talks about the enmity. And that's simply hostility. There was hostility between these two groups of people. There was enmity. And on one hand, uh, well, how do you say it? I mean, God actually totally warned the Jew not to mingle with the Gentile. And, uh, and God, in a sense, had put the wall there. And uh, God wanted himself a people who were holy and here was a people who were wicked and unholy and God clearly left his people know that he doesn't want his people mingling with the wicked and the, the lawless and the, and the godless because he wants a people who honor him and are solely for him. And so in its, in its uh, right perspective, you know, God knew what he was doing. God knew if they mingle with the wicked, they'll become wicked. And it happened. It happened over and over again. They proved it over and over again. So this hostility that was between them, in a sense, uh, in part at least, it, you know, the law forbade them to, uh, to uh, interact in, in major ways with the Gentile. However, uh, you know, without going back into the law and looking at all the details, I, there, you know, there were... There were uh, there was a way to, uh, you know, make proselytes of the Gentiles and all those kind of things. We're not going to bother going into all of that and trying to figure all that out. It's not really part of our, our burden here today. But uh, there was a hostility. And uh, But what I like, it, coming back again to these scriptures, you know, Paul didn't, uh, you know, Paul was... Uh, he, he contrasted things here in these verses with the Gentiles. He's speaking to the Gentiles and he reminds them that to the Jew, they were considered an uncircumcised people. Uh, verse 12, to the Jew, they're considered uh, uh, without Christ. They're considered aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, which was the Jewish nation. Uh, strangers from the covenants of promise, which were the promise given to the Jewish people. They were a people having no hope. They were a people that are without God in the world. Uh, now, what he says is 100% true. That is how it was. Israel was uh, uh, God's people. Israel had the covenants of promise. Israel were a people who were offered hope by God. The Gentile were not necessarily. They were, uh, in a sense, a godless people, as we said. But Paul here, he... Uh, he mentions that. He doesn't shy away from that fact. He doesn't, uh, I don't think he's trying to rub salt in a wound. I don't believe that at all. Uh, 
There's probably people that could understand it that way, but I, I don't believe that's what he was doing. He was rather facing truth, facing reality, facing, you know, life where it really is. Uh, that's what he was doing. You know, there's a sense in which his analysis of the Gentile is coming from a pretty negative perspective. A, uh, if you jump over to verse um, chapter 4, verse 17, he says in a couple of verses here, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, again, Paul doesn't mince words about the truth of where the Gentile is. He's speaking to a Gentile audience who are converted. There's a good possibility that if this, if this is Holy Scripture, that there's Gentiles going to read this that are not converted. But he doesn't mince the truth. He doesn't, uh, uh, he doesn't try to pretend something that isn't real. He faces reality right where it is. This is, in fact, where a Gentile finds himself who's outside of Christ. You know, many of the Gentiles. Where am I going with this thought here? You know, in many ways, what Paul is saying here and the way he addresses, he makes the contrast between the Jew and the Gentile and he faces the Gentile right where he lives. Lawless, without conscience. Uh, what are the words that he says there? Uh, given over to lasciviousness. Working on cleanness with greediness. Paul wouldn't be considered very politically correct in our world today. Would he? You don't address people that way. You never come from the negative perspective. People are never wrong in our world today. A student never fails in school. That's the world we live in. In child training, you never approach it from a negative perspective. And we won't take the time to go into Proverbs and read what Proverbs has to say. But that's the world we live in. Um, in counseling, in worldly counseling today, you never approach it from a negative perspective. You never speak negatively into a person's life. You always got to somehow come from the positive perspective. And I agree to positive. I agree to that. To encourage someone, to give someone hope. We always must give someone hope. But hear me out here just a bit. A lot of Christian counseling has adopted the same perspective. You, 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 uh, you never uh, approach it from a negative perspective. You, you must always be positive. Let's just uh, 
Let's draw another illustration here. Our board's not real big, but it'll work. Let's just say that uh, this is reality. Let's say that is reality. We could say that is you. And it doesn't matter what the scope of you is, really. It doesn't matter. What is really important is the fact that whatever is a part of your life is a part of your reality. That is what is important. Every person's reality is probably different. What, you know, what life has dealt them, how they have responded to what life has dealt them. But the important uh, matter is that this is reality. This is you. In, uh, in our world today, and in modern counseling today, and in modern perspective, you, you, you're never wrong. You, you never fail. So, when there's a problem, now what? If you're never wrong, and you never fail, and I realize I'm probably going to just a little bit of an extreme when I say that, When I say never, because reality is sooner or later, everybody finally comes down to the fact that sometimes I am wrong. And sometimes I do fail. And sometimes I am to blame. But in our world, and the perspective is, you cannot blame someone. You cannot, a person is never wrong. The students in school are never wrong. So when there's a problem, now what? Since this person is never wrong. Since you're sitting beside a counselor and the counselor cannot tell you, here is the problem. Number one, number two, number three. He cannot do that. You have responded this way. You have failed to, to recognize this in your life. So we have to find something else to peg the problem on in our modern world. That someone else could be a parent. It could be a boss. It could be a pastor. It could be just a church. In general, you could probably put a whole list of things there. But uh, there's a problem, and we have to find a solution. And the problem, obviously, was not you, so it has to be someone else. 
Now we have created a false reality. And now you become the victim of your circumstances. I don't believe I spelled that right. But you become the victim of your circumstances. The fault lies here. And you have a false reality rather than real truth, reality, who you really are. What's the problem with that? You know, Paul, as I said, he doesn't tiptoe around the fact that the Gentile was a ungodly person. He was, uh, he was given over to working all uncleanness with greediness. He was lascivious. He was uh, alienated from the life of God. He was living in ignorance. He was living in blindness of his heart. Paul does not uh, try to find another way to face reality or truth. He faces it right where it is. And I... I want to emphasize the fact that love and compassion and gentleness must always be a part of how we handle truth and handle the Word of God. Must always be a part. But we'll never... uh, Let me say this first of all. Jesus said, Know the truth and the truth will make you free. We will never help someone if we move away from the truth of the matter and go to some other created unrealistic picture, we will never help them. And you will never get helped if you will not face life right where it is. You know, there's... there's, um, When you think about life and reality, you know, any one of us... Whoever we are, you know, we, when we come to the place of, you know, let's say we're, we're, we're in a situation and we need God. We, we're, life, we're not at peace. We're, there's trouble in our lives and, and, uh, there's problems. You know, we, any one of us, there's, uh, there's a number of, uh, of things that we can consider. One of them is, first of all, is simply my own sins. My own failures. The things I did that were wrong. The times I blew up at somebody and gave them a tongue lashing. You know, whatever. You put in there what you want. There's all those things that I did wrong. You know what you do with those when you face reality? There's a word called repentance. It's in the Bible. When you face reality, those kind of things, you repent. And repentance will set you free as a human being. Know the truth. Face the truth. Face the truth of who I am with the truth of God's word. Repentance and you'll find freedom in that area. What about all the, the bad deals that life sent my way? And I realize I'm, I'm, speaking, I'm speaking in terms of almost idealism and yet not because we do want to grasp this. What about all those raw deals that life sent my way? What about the people that used me wrong? 
You know, repentance doesn't seem to be the right word for that. There's another word. It's called forgiveness. Forgiveness will free any person from any of the kinds of situations that life dealt them. Difficult situations. And I know it's not easy. I'm not advocating here that it's just a one, two, three thing. I'm not. I know it's not easy. But is there any other way to approach it than that? Is there any other way for a person to find freedom than that? To forgive the offenders who they believe have offended them. To forgive and to release. And I I, I know it's bigger than what I'm making it appear. I want you to understand that I'm not making it a, a simple one, two, three thing. I'm not. But I'm looking at the bottom line truths that if we if we aren't working from that premise, we can work for years. And if we're not working where, where reality is in a person's life, but are working over here in an unrealistic situation that has been created, you can spin your wheels for days and years and months and you'll never get anywhere in helping that person find true freedom. So that is some of what our world today, as it, you know, and that one will not change. You know, the schools today... Uh, children, you, you know, teachers can't tell them they did wrong. Teachers can't discipline them. Teachers, you know, frankly, we're raising a generation of fools. And we may as well face it. The wisdom of men has become incredibly foolish. But that's the world we live in. But my problem, my concern is not so much with the world. My concern is with even a good deal of Christianity that these little concepts just work their way in. And they do. They do. And it's not unusual to find this kind of a scenario in counseling centers. I mean, frankly, it is not unusual at all in some of our modern counseling centers for them to sit down and peg. uh, And I'm not saying parents have done everything wrong. Are done everything right. I'm not advocating that at all. But it, it's not unusual to find counseling centers who will sit down and take a person's life completely apart and peg this and this and this and this. You're the victim. Da, 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 da. It happens. And it's sad because it does not bring the true freedom that people need. So I want to encourage us today to be aware of those kind of uh, perspectives and to realize that, and to, no, to ask ourselves the question, as we, as we go through life and we assimilate a lot of things in life, we assimilate a lot of perspectives, we do well to think about what we assimilate. Think about, you know, the... Uh, Is it really biblical? It's just a question that we have to ask ourselves over and over again. Is it really biblical? Is it scriptural? And will it bear positive, lasting fruit? We do need to move on. Okay, now here we have, uh, we have, in fact, I'll give you the title of the message now. That was, like I said, a little side note that I gleaned from this scripture in looking over how Paul handled this. Uh, but anyhow, Paul goes on here. He says that uh, 
Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man. So making peace. I have the title today, Two Shall Become One. Now, lest you uh, think uh, I thought about giving it in the beginning and then I forgot. But uh, he says here, making in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. As we said, we have this illustration on the top here. We have the Jew in the left field and Gentile in the right field and neither of them, God was extremely, you know, God couldn't say, you know, either of these have, you know, generated something that I'm really happy with. And so God, uh, God, uh, I'm just going to put another circle here. God came up with another plan and uh, that plan is Jesus. He came up with a way that he was going to bring both the uh, Gentile and the Jew together as one man, as one person, as one uh, body, as this scripture says here. You know, we recognize, uh, based on those uh, few examples we looked at, we recognize that There was people in the Jewish nation who were following God. They were honoring God. They were, God was happy with them. There were people in the Gentile nation who were honoring God. God was happy with them. But God unveils a new plan here. And, uh, in fact, there in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, uh, Paul says here, um, almost need to read a little bit of the context here, but, Paul, again, he's writing to the Gentiles. He says in verse 2, If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy prophets, and by the Spirit, holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles shall be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promises in Christ by the gospel. That is what God is uh, uh, has unveiled, a new plan there with the coming of Christ. You know, the interesting thing, uh, God did not try to improve on any of these. Neither the Jew nor the Gentile, as far as their basic structure. God unveiled a new plan for both. And that was the thing that that, uh, particularly that God unveiled was the fact that the Gentile would now be a part of this plan. The Jew was a part of the scope of God's workings before, but now the Gentile would be as well. And, uh, And God didn't try to improve on either one, uh, but He rather introduced a radical new plan, a a radical new perspective. And uh, the Gentile, 
who was far off. Again, this book is written to the Gentile, so we're getting it from the Gentile uh, perspective. The Gentile who was far off, as it says in these verses, is now in verse 13, made nigh by the blood of Christ. He who was far separated from God by his wicked, wicked life is now made nigh by the blood of Jesus, by the forgiveness that Christ uh, has brought through shedding his blood. The Gentile who was notorious for sinful living now has an answer for his sins, now has an answer for his problem. He can come to God with a free conscience and be at peace with God. And so, of course, as it says there in verse 13 of chapter 1, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. You know, the, uh, the Gentile had to be, he had to hear the word. He had to be informed about Christ. And of course, he had to respond to the word that he heard if it was going to benefit him. And many did. And of course, you and I are some of those who have been blessed uh, to uh, be Gentile believers. And so in verse 14 and verse 14 through verse 18, we have the Jew and the Gentile meeting on common ground, which is simply Christ in the middle. Both of them had to forsake their old ways uh, and come to a new way. And as the Bible would say, the kingdom of Christ. The law would have forbade the Jew to mingle with the Gentile before because the Gentile was a lawless people, but God had a remedy. And in fact, as you notice here, it says here in verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Uh, what God had said before about, uh, you know, what the law contained in, in the sense of, of kind of putting a, uh, a uh, I don't know what the word is, but blocking the Gentile out of the kingdom, basically, that was broken down. It was gone. It was no longer uh, through Christ, that uh, the veil was rent, you would say, and the door was open, the, the, uh, the opportunity for the, uh, the Gentile to be a believer and to be a part. Uh, you know, there was no, there was, uh, think about it, the hostil- let's just say, for example, that the hostility would have uh, been largely between the fact that the Jew was considered, considered holy and considered himself holy, and the Gentile was basically a sinner and lawless people. And so there was hostility. Well, when God sent Jesus Christ for, for all mankind, and a, and a Gentile became a believer in Christ, without going into the scripture to look at it all, a Gentile forsook his sins and became a holy person. And so the need, the host, the need for any kind of hostility was totally gone. The ground was now level. The Jew who repented and put his faith in Jesus Christ, and the Gentile who repented put his faith in Jesus Christ, automatically should end up at a place where there's no hostility. There's no reason for hostility. They're both at the same place. They both, it doesn't matter what for gutter they came from, they're both at the same place. They're both now part of a new kingdom. And so there's no need for the hostility any longer. 
making of himself twain, one new man. <clears throat> In verse, uh, verse 17, he says, And he came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. You know, the, the Gentile was considered far off. The Jew was considered nigh because he had the, the law. He had been, you know, supposedly uh, been a part of God's work up to that point. But uh, the, uh, he brought them both, brought them together. You know, as I, I was thinking about that, maybe I'll just reflect on, uh, yeah, as I was thinking about that, I, was, uh, I thought about uh, our brother Tim Zizet in, in Tanzania and Cradle. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, Tim was uh, 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 brought up in a godly home, brought up in a Christian uh, church, you know, and all those kind of things. And Credo was over there in Africa, in the in the you know in the back uh, villages, uh, remote villages, uh, and probably a very very ungodly man. And he has come to Christ, and these two have incredibly close fellowship. And that's a beautiful picture of what you know what God is has done uh, through Christ. Making of uh, making uh, two and making them one, uh, and you could even look at it as different nations. Tim being an American and and, uh, and Cradle being an African. <clears throat> so now the believing Gentile is part of the kingdom plan. If we see here in verse 19, now therefore ye are no more strangers. They were strangers. They were foreigners. They are no more strangers and foreigners. But they are now fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. The, uh, the, the, the Gentile is a part of God's plan. The Gentile is a part of the, uh, the, the scope from here out. The, uh, as verse 20 says, they are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You know, the... Uh, the uh, prophets spoke of this time. They prophesied that is this day will come. They prophesied that Christ will uh, come and make, uh, you know, bring the Jew and the Gentile together. They prophesied of it. Uh, the apostles uh, continued with that burden. And, of course, we have Jesus Christ being the very cornerstone, being the one who caused it all to happen, being the one who... who, uh, who sits at that central spot and everything else revolves around him. He's the one we come back to over and over again. In fact, we should stay there all the time. But he's the one we, we, we look to him all the time. He's our pivotal point. Jesus Christ. The cornerstone. When a building, and we don't quite build buildings the way they used to, but uh, in years gone by, they would find the, the spot, you know, they would establish their foundation and lay that one cornerstone, and from there, everything, all, all measurements came off of that. It was the pivotal point, and everything else had to work in, in, in relation to that pivotal point. And that's what we have with Jesus Christ here. In, uh, in the Christian experience, in this uh, day of grace, He is the pivotal point. He is the one where we, where we have to be continually aligning ourselves with. And... Like I said, it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what gutter we came from, whether a Jew or a Gentile. We are all made one in that new body of Christ. 
And as you think about it, Jesus, as it says here in this, uh, this verse, uh, verse 20, that Jesus is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Who is the building? You know, the, uh, the, the uh, apostles and the prophets were the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. Who's the building? The church, the believers. The believers are the building. As it says here, we, as believers, corporately together, we, we frame a building. And God Himself wants to dwell within us. In that building that we create in Christ, that we, you know, that we make up as believers. We grow together into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That is the picture of the church. Ye are builded together. God wants to build us all together. All, you know, different parts of the building. You know, if you picture a building. And each one of us makes up a part of that building. And God wants to dwell there within us as a, in fullness, as a body. That's the picture that we have of uh, this new man, this new uh, unveiled plan. The Jew and the Gentile becoming believers together and uh, serving and loving and living for the Lord as one body. You know, it's a... uh, It's a wonderful plan, really is. Um, the Lord wants to dwell there. The Lord wants to manifest Himself through us to the world, to the unbeliever, whether it's the unbelieving Jew or the unbelieving Gentile. The Lord wants to live in among us and. Uh, You know, in uh, just thinking about some some uh, applications that we could make, as we th- we see this picture, and uh, there's one thing I do want to comment on. It says here that uh, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Uh, there is no doubt that uh, whether we whether we were a Gentile or whether we were a Jew, God. Salvation isn't um, salvation isn't adding Jesus to our existing life. Um, if we, if that's all it is, we never we never meet in the middle, and we'll never we'll never blend the Jew and the Gentile together. Uh, in other words, we'll never meet in one in Christ. So the we recognize that salvation, and as you know. The rest of this book will bear out uh, quite a lot that uh, salvation and forgiveness of sins has nothing to do with uh, dealing with a person um, living here. It has everything to do with taking him out of this mess, out of this mess as well, and bringing him over here, bringing him into Christ, into a saving faith into a uh, a life in Jesus Christ that is it's a totally different life than what uh, 
than what you may have had before, depending particularly on your circumstances and and, uh, experiences of life. Now, sometimes this scripture is used to discuss the differences between the, quote, churched people and a first-generation Christian or an unbeliever in general. You know, sometimes a scripture like this, it, it comes up at times. You know, sometimes uh, uh, b- believers who are, are uh, you know, grandpa and grandma and great-grandpa and, and all those were believers. And uh, sometimes they're referred to as the, the Jew, you know, the ones who've been with, uh, you know, had the truth for years and, and, uh, and, uh, and the one who... Uh, who is a first-generation Christian or is not even, you know, just simply in the city of Lebanon ministering to the, the, the godless of our, our world. Um, the contrast is made Jew and Gentile, you know, kind of this vast difference. And there's no doubt that the difference is vast. And I would dare to say that that difference uh, continues to become more vast as uh, our world continues on its plunge downward. Uh, There is one problem that I have, though, with that general um, illustration. And that problem is illustrated right here. If the New Testament believer, who has, you know, been a part of a church for many years, and believes in uh, uh, an an, uh, an obedient faith, you know, a faith that obeys, that obeys Christ, uh, loves his teachings and walks in them. If a New Testament believer who is, you know, has that blessed privilege, is, has been living for the Lord Jesus, is, is illustrated as this. There's a problem. Because now we're indicating that there's a great gulf, and this, this, this illustration comes up many times because of this challenge to jump this, this gap between the, the believer, the disciplined person, the, you know, the person who has had a godly upbringing, the, versus the, the person who just, just didn't have a chance. Everything was wrong in their life. And it's so difficult and it is. It's incredibly difficult to to get someone uh, to get serious enough about Christ to, in this uh, Gentile world that we live in. As you know, in the city life, it's not easy uh, ministering in the city to get them to the place where. And I mean, it happens. God's power is still real. He's still doing it. We all admit it's not an easy thing. If we use this illustration to, to uh, describe that difference and that jump and that gap and that difficulty, then we have a problem because now we're indicating that there's a problem here. We need to move this direction so that this person, unbeliever, doesn't have as far to go. And that's a problem. That's, uh, that's an unscriptural perspective. <clears throat> not saying that uh, the, the church and the believer and uh, that churches are always right in their 
everything they do and in all their perspectives. Not saying that. However, uh, if we if we criticize someone who uh, does is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and is uh, is uh, believes in living out their faith in obedience, and we begin to criticize that as part of the problem that the Gentile can't become a part of the of a New Testament church. Uh, I think we better be a little bit careful if we carry that kind of mentality, that kind of perspective. Uh, Yeah, think about that a little bit. It's not unusual for uh, people who are living a life of faith and obedience to be criticized and actually uh, almost indicated that they're somewhere over here and that they really need to move this direction. That's not unusual for that kind of criticism to be floating around. And like I said, I'm, uh, I'm aware that as conservative uh, Anabaptist people at large, you know, and even with us, you know, who believe in obeying the word and the teachings of Christ. I'm aware that not everything is always what it should be. I'm aware of that. At the same time, uh, I do believe we want to be careful what our perspective is. I do think we want to. And we could even break it down into our individual lives, those of us people who make up these churches and this this, uh, new... uh, you know, body in Christ, you know, as individuals, we don't always perfectly reflect the example of faith and obedience that maybe we would like to, or we would at times see we should. But I'm definitely concerned that uh, we don't slot a life of faith and obedience over here. When in reality, it it needs to be here, and uh, and that we would appreciate that. I would say in our world again today, the pressure is on. Uh, the pressure is on. You know, you gotta you gotta meet them in the middle somewhere. We gotta move this way. You gotta gotta somehow make it easier. And I. Again, I'm not, uh, I know the difficulties and I, I, I sympathize. I'm not a hard, cold person in these things. I, ha- I care about people. But we'll never help someone by moving away from our pivotal point, which is Jesus Christ and his word and his teachings and his, his instruction for us. We won't help someone else and we won't help ourselves. We'll only make it worse. We'll only make create more difficulties for ourselves. So, in all of this, you know, love and care and compassion is a major, major part of our. It needs to be a major, major part of our hearts as we work work uh, uh, at bringing others from this Gentile world. And there's there's obviously people who are living in a life of. You know, they're, they're a part of a church experience where they obey the church rules and feel like that's their salvation and all those kind of things. Those things are real. And when that is the case, you know, the person is really living in a Jewish experience where it's 
the things I do that gain me favor with God. And they also need to jump and get over here to Christ. But uh, So, yeah, Lord, help us to uh, discern those things. <clears throat> Another uh, thought that I thought to share here this morning, yet in our day, and I'm sure this has probably been the case many times through the generations, but uh, there's... Uh, there's a fair amount of pressure that young people face that uh, that they need to define their own faith. Um, you know, I need to determine for myself what I really believe. That's that pressure is is fairly great. It shows up, you know, from various places, uh, and it's a reality. I. I'm going to say that is a reality. It is, uh, you know, you have been, you've been raised in a Christian home. Your parents have taught you. You've heard the preaching of the word. The scriptures expounded over the years. And uh, many a youth will face that, that uh, turbulent struggle in their youthful years of, of uh, you know, early on. You know, early on in their earlier teen years, some of them may become a believer. You know, they settle their faith with Christ and, and they're a Christian for a couple of years, and they get into those mid-teen years, and and uh, there's there's uh, conflicts, there's personal struggles, there's the world's lures, and there's liberal Christianity, and there's friends that don't don't believe the way I you know don't honor the same principles my parents do, and there's all kinds of conflicts that can start happening in the heart of a youth, <clears throat> and they do. And then the youth begins to feel like, well, you know, do I have to believe everything dad taught me? Do I have to believe everything the parents taught me? Do I have to believe everything the pastor taught at our church? You know, do I really have to? I need to find out who I am. I need to find out what I believe, you know. And it's a real battle. It is. It's a real battle. But I want to give you, try to give you a little direction on that if I can. I understand that that struggle is real. And let me say it this way, I understand to a measure, but there is also some deception in that concept, if you allow me to say that. There is some deception in that very concept. When you say that, I need to figure out for myself what I believe, there is deception is already working in your heart. And if you can face that one uh, and accept that truth, it will be a... It'll conquer a good bit of that battle. I'll try to explain why I say that. First of all, will you accept if I say that the faith is already defined? The faith is already defined. This book defines the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our endeavors are to understand it and to live it and live in the reality of it. So, in all reality, the question that you need to answer is not, am I, you know, is not what, you know, who am I, what do I believe about, what do I believe and all those kind of things. The question that you actually need to answer is, am I ready and willing to believe the faith that is already defined? In the word of God. Am I willing to accept the faith. 
that is already defined in the Word of God? That is actually the question you need to answer. Because the faith is defined. I mentioned Christ is our pivotal point. He's the cornerstone. There's actually, and that is, that is 100% true. But you know what? For a young person, that is not actually the only pivotal point that you have. Did you know that? In first, um, no, in second Timothy. In second Timothy, Paul actually defines a pivotal point for Timothy. In uh, verse, we'll just read verse, uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 5 to begin, uh, and then we'll jump to a later verse here. But he says, and Paul is just, uh, he's expressing his love and care for Timothy. And he says here, when I call to remembrance the faith that is in thee, speaking to Timothy, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Loss and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in thee also. Now there notice, we simply read that to notice that grandma was a believer, mother was a believer, and Timothy was a believer. And Paul mentions, or yeah, Paul mentions that to him. Now notice, jump over to chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, and let's actually, for the sake of context, we really do need to read verse uh, 13, but notice this, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now notice what he says next, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through the faith which is in our Lord, which is in Christ Jesus. That scripture should give direction to any youthful, struggling heart. If you find yourself in that youthful battle, God has given the, your, the faith of your parents the faith that you have been living around, you know, all your growing up years as a pivotal point for your life. To protect you from the deceptions that are going to come and are out there. And that's why I said, if you're in that place where you're saying, I need to figure out for myself, deception is already at work. It is. That kind of perspective is not found in the scripture. I understand it when it's said. I understand what's going on in the heart when you're saying it. But I beg you to consider this scripture. It's not a biblical thing to figure out for yourself what you believe. Can you accept that from the scriptures? He says here, evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But listen, Timothy, while that is all taking place, Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. The lives of those who have taught you should demonstrate your ability to to 
use that as a pivotal point, that teaching, that instruction, that guidance that has been given. That should be a pivotal point. Obviously, if those who have taught you their life doesn't measure up in in various ways to the scripture, well, then you, you have another problem. But if their life is honoring the word of God and they are walking in the word of God in obedience and their life demonstrates a faith in Christ, then you have a pivotal point given to you by God to help you out when those youthful uh, battles and struggles come. I want to encourage you with that. That, uh, that should be freeing to you. That should be protection to you. That should be encouragement to you. I want to encourage you with those words. The faith that has been passed down should be, should serve as an anchor for your soul. According to these scriptures, it should serve as that. A young person who has had parents who have lived the true faith and obedience should has no reason to be without an anchor, without a pivotal point to ever go back to, to ever test the, the various uh, challenges that come up, to test the perspectives of your friends. Folks, it needs to happen. As young people, you know, you need to, you should have that. You should have that anchor. And you should test the perspectives of your friends uh, and see whether it holds up to the, uh, to the example and the teachings that uh, have been a part of your life all those years. And if you're without an anchor, could I suggest that it is because you will not believe and accept what is already defined in this book. May I say that? If you are without an anchor, then it's because you will not accept what is already defined in this book. So I want to encourage us with those words today. Uh, God has... God, His Word speaks into our lives in in all aspects, really. And uh, I hope we can... I hope we can appreciate God's God's instruction and God's direction in uh, in these practical things that uh, that it can uh, lay a foundation in our hearts that be a yeah be a guide for us be an anchor be a pivotal point just like we have up here that we can recognize this pivotal point and always always just keep coming keep our hearts fixed on that and make life's decisions and life's uh, various goings and comings and all those things based on that pivotal point. <clears throat> could we, uh, maybe we could kneel together. If we're able, kneel together for prayer. <clears throat> yes, our Lord Jesus, we do bow before you, our great God. Thank you again today for your word and and for its inspiration and for its encouragement. Today, Father, again, I want to pray a blessing of grace upon each heart. Lord, I just pray that your word would be quickened in our hearts and it would produce precious fruit, Lord, in days and weeks ahead. 
Father, again, may your, may your uh, grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to each one. May we be strengthened in our faith. May we be encouraged in our walk. May we be renewed in our uh, perseverance and our determination. And Father, may we run the race with diligence and with patience. Father, grant us wisdom to live as believers in today's world. Lord, continue to uh, cause your face to shine upon us and grant us, Lord, to be able to reach those who are without hope and without Christ. Father, we, we just pray, Lord, grant us that. Grant us that grace, that compassion, that care, and that truth that will set people free and to see others also be snatched out of the, out of the gutters of sin and be established in the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, that is our prayer. Continue to teach us, continue to lead us, continue to shape yourself in us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.